This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There is an interest in putting us in a box of constantly defending our identities. And I am not interested in being in that box. I'm interested in defending my ideas and not my identity. I'm Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed. We have an exclusive on the show today. Ilhan Omar, freshman House Democrat and one of the first two Muslim-American women ever elected to Congress, talks to me for the first time about how she found herself in the middle of that huge controversy over anti-Semitism. She tells me why she's opposed to US intervention in Venezuela, and she makes it very clear that she won't be bullied either by right-wing critics or by far-right death threats. It's her first national and first broadcast interview since she hit the headlines earlier this month. The purpose of the apology was to make sure that the people who were hurt felt understood and heard. And leaving the tweets up no longer would be part of that. I I wanted to make sure that we made amends. So this week, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, on AIPAC and Israel, and on the fight for a new progressive foreign policy. She's fast becoming a household name. Ilhan Omar has been in the news for all sorts of reasons, good and bad, in recent weeks. She's been targeted by a white nationalist domestic terrorist. Lieutenant Christopher Hassan made a hit list of prominent members of the Democratic Party, including Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And last weekend, a pair of idiotic alt-right social media activists, one of whom has since been suspended from Twitter, turned up in her district to try and find evidence of Islamic radicalism and no-go zones for non-Muslims. Spoiler alert, they failed. Earlier this month, Omar shook up the Washington foreign policy establishment by challenging veteran warmonger and genocide denier Elliot Abrams, he of Iran-Contra and El Salvador death squads infamy, when he turned up in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee on which she now sits to talk about his new role as the Trump administration's point man on Venezuela. In 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the iran Contra affair. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give today to be truthful. If I could respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. The grand Abrams had never been challenged like that, and certainly not by a black Muslim woman in a headscarf. But of course, the main reason Omar's been in the headlines is for a pair of rather controversial tweets. The congresswoman drew a firestorm of criticism when she replied to a tweet by journalist Glenn Greenwald by implying that politicians support Israel for campaign donations. Quote, 
It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Then, in response to this tweet, would love to know who Ilham thinks is paying American politicians to be pro-Israel. Omar tweeted again, APAC. Those comments now bringing combination from the left and the right. To be suggesting that somehow members of Congress are being paid off by Jews, by APAC, it's absolutely shameful. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, leader Cindy Hoyer, and many others now, they say that they condemn what she has said. Congresswoman Omar's use of anti-Semitic tropes and prejudicial accusations about Israel supporters is deeply offensive. We condemn these remarks and we call upon Congresswoman Omar to immediately apologize. Omar did apologise unequivocally the following day, saying she was willing to step back and think through the criticism that she received from some Jewish figures. But her tweets about AIPAC and about the role that money plays in securing support for Israel from members of Congress kicked off a massive controversy about what is and what is not anti-Semitism. Look, anti-Semitism is very real in the United States right now, and anti-Semitic tropes involving Jewish money and secret Jewish cabals running the world are all too real too. Though to be clear, personally, I do not believe Ilhan Omar was trying to be or thought she was being anti-Semitic. She, perhaps naively, thought she was highlighting a powerful and reactionary lobby group no different to the NRA. But the pylon against Omar, a young black Muslim refugee immigrant woman lest we forget, has been ludicrously disproportionate and at times, I think, hysterical. And then there's the hypocrisy of some of the folks leading the attacks on her and trying to take the high ground on religious bigotry and anti-Semitism. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer joined with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to condemn Omar for her, quote, deeply offensive and hurtful and prejudicial tweets. The same Chuck Schumer, who's been an apologist for Israel's brutal and racist occupation for decades. Decades. Here he is speaking at where else the APAC policy conference last year, and explaining why he blames the Palestinians, and only the Palestinians, for the failure to get peace in the Middle East. Of course, we say it's our land. The Torah says it, but they don't believe in the Torah. So that's the reason there is not peace. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Minority Leader, who's been trying now for a while to get both Omar and her fellow Muslim Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib punished by the House Democratic leadership for supporting the Boycott Israel movement, put out a statement in the wake of the Omar tweets condemning, quote, harmful tropes and stereotypes. McCarthy is the same guy who put out a tweet of his own last year around the same time as George Soros was getting a pipe bomb in the mail, a tweet he later deleted, accusing three Jewish billionaires, George Soros, Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, of trying to buy the midterms for the Democrats. I guess McCarthy is an expert on harmful tropes. And President Trump weighed in as well, demanding Ilhan Omar resign from Congress. Anti-Semitism has no place in the United States Congress. Her lame apology, and that's what it was, it was lame, and she didn't mean a word of it, uh, was just not appropriate. I think she should resign from Congress, frankly. But at a minimum, she shouldn't be on committees. Sorry, we're supposed to take lectures on anti-Semitism from Donald Trump. From Donald Trump. This is what Trump said in 2015 to a group of Republican Jewish donors. I don't want your money, therefore you're probably not going to support me because stupidly you want to give money. Trump doesn't want money. But that's okay. You want to control your own politician. That's fine. Good. That's not worth resigning over? Yeah. 
Donald Trump, who once said he wanted short guys in yarmulkes counting his money, who used to keep a book of Hitler's speeches on his bedside table, who as president publicly praised neo-Nazis at Charlottesville, who were chanting, Jews will not replace us. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Are you freaking kidding me? Come on, the world's gone mad. Ironically, it was left to Representative Max Rose, a Jewish Democrat who was one of the first members of Congress to condemn Omar for her tweets, but who then accepted her apology. It was left to him to point out the ridiculousness and the shamelessness of the Republican attacks on her and also the awfulness of the media coverage. When Kevin McCarthy said that it was Bloomberg and when it was Soros and it was Steyer pulling the strings behind, behind the scenes, none of you camped out. And their caucus stayed united and had his back. And none of you called them out on that. That caucus can't be chicken shit in the face of anti-Semitism either. So, seriously, you ha you, you, you're not agents of the Republican Party. You're not agents of the Republican Party. In many ways, though, sadly, too many journalists, wittingly or unwittingly, have become agents of the Republican Party with their both sidesism, their constant lazy indulgence of cynical bad faith attacks on the left and especially on people of colour from the right and their inability to call out shameless Republican hypocrisy. Whatever your views on Israel or anti-Semitism, that much has been made very clear to all of us in recent weeks. My guest today is the woman who has been in the eye of the storm, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who was elected to the House last November. Hers was a historic victory in many ways. The refugee who arrived in the US, age 12, unable to speak English, but ended up becoming the first Somali-American and the first ever Muslim woman in a headscarf to be elected to Congress. She's also part of a new cohort of House members loudly pushing the Democrats to the left. Ilhan Omar, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you for having me. Uh, congratulations on your historic election to Congress. You are one of the first two Muslim American women to ever be elected, the first Somali American to be elected, the first refugee from Africa to be elected. But not everyone is pleased to see so many women, people of color, Muslims, progressives elected to high office. Last week, we learned of a United States Coast Guard lieutenant who prosecutors say had plans to carry out mass murder. He was found with a massive weapons cache at his home, and he had a hit list of liberal politicians who he wanted to kill which included your name on it. What was your reaction when you heard you were on his kill list? I was relieved to know that he was behind prison. But what about you being on that list? Because there does seem to be this weird obsession with you on the right, and on parts of the liberal left, but especially on the right right now, who seem to be obsessed with you, have basically turned you into this kind of boogeyman uh, online, to the point where alt-right social media activists turn up with guards uh, in your hometown of Minneapolis last weekend looking for you and for evidence of ISIS and no-go zones for non-Muslims. It's becoming kind of hysterical. It, it really is uh, hysterical. I mean, I'm, you know, 5'3 and, and, and weight, I think, under 100 pounds. So to have uh, these, these people who are um, afraid of me, it's, it's kind of fascinating. A lot of people aren't aware of the kind of crazy racist Islamophobic abuse that you and Rashida Taleb of Michigan have received since arriving here in Congress, um, incited, some might argue, uh, by some congressional Republicans, by the President of the United States. What has that been like for you, the incessant hostility, the abuse, your staff getting calls, death threats? I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you look at it within the context of, of what we are trying to do 
it sort of feels like it comes with the territory. I mean, we're we're shifting, I think, the idea of who should have a seat at the table. These systems really weren't built for people like Rashida and myself. And I think we can spend a lot of time focusing on the doors that we have to open and keep open or let this deter us. And I think that's what they would like us to do. They would like us to be afraid. They would like us to shrink. But Rashida and I are are quite used to bullies and we've always been bullies. And I think the people in our districts, I know the people in our districts who voted for us knew that uh, we were the right people to come here and uh, shake things up. But this is beyond politics and shaking things up. You now have a literal target on your back. How much do you have to worry about your safety right now? I'm a, I'm a person of faith. So I know that I, I will leave this earth when the time comes. And I know that there is important work for me to do. And so I'm focused on that. Your critics, uh, some of your diehard opponents would say that you've brought a lot of this animosity and hostility on yourself, they say. They say you're anti-Semitic. They would point to your tweet from 2012 where you said Israel had hypnotized the world, which you apologized for recently. And of course, a few weeks ago, you dominated the news headlines in this country uh, for several days after your tweet about the influence of APAC money on members of Congress, after which you were condemned by your own leadership after which you came out and apologized. Why did you tweet that line, it's all about the Benjamins? What was going through your mind at that moment? I mean, it's no secret that money dominates the political discourse in this country. I mean, it's it's one of the dirty secrets that is not so secret. And so for me, it it was really speaking to that. It was speaking to the fact that we have a problem mm. in our democracy and that problem is the influence of money. So you've since apologized unequivocally for the tweet. You've said rightly that anti-Semitism is real. But just to be clear, I mean, we're a few weeks on now. I mean, what, were I, you, what were you apologizing for? Was it a badly worded tweet that you were apologizing for? Or was it for being anti-Semitic wittingly or unwittingly? Oh, absolutely not. I, 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 I apologized for the way that my words made people feel. Oftentimes, you know, we are in places where someone will say something and they might not know how it makes you feel. And it's not acceptable that once you express to them that this is this is hurtful yeah. or that you have felt attacked by their words, they should acknowledge how you feel. They should speak to that. They should apologize and, you know, figure out a way to that, remedy that situation. And that's why you apologize. That is why I apologize. And is apologize. that why you deleted your tweets this week? Because the chairwoman of the uh, Republican Party is all over Twitter, uh, su- suggesting that was some sort of bad move on your part or bad faith move on your part. I mean, for a Republican who always makes a bad mo- bad faith move <laughs> um, to call someone out on that uh, is is laughable, as you just did. The reason I, you know, and the purpose of the apology was to make sure that the people who were hurt felt understood and heard. And leaving the tweets up no longer would be part of that. Matt Duss, who's a senior foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, tweeted at the time, quote, to every Democrat who said nothing about the anti-Muslim bigotry, harassment and bullying Representative Ilhan Omar has been enduring over the past months, but only spoke up to criticise her, you are part of the problem. Do you feel like your fellow Democrats, especially the leadership, threw you under the bus? I mean, 
you know, we are a party that really believes in having an inclusive society, one that has no tolerance for actual hate or the resemblance of hate. I think it it was appropriate for our party to speak on it. And, you know, it was appropriate for me to acknowledge the harm that it caused. But I think people conflate two things. I think there were some people who were condemning me, not only on the hurt that the words could cause. They were there were people who were actually condemning me for speaking the truth about, you know, the the, the kind of influences that 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 exist um, that determine, yeah. you know, our our foreign and domestic po- policies. And for that, I think, you know, my my tweet kind of spoke to it. But even Bernie Sanders, who I think was the only presidential candidate who's run, running in the race, who rang you up recently and, and, and gave you some words. So he did that kind of privately. He didn't do it publicly. I mean, what did he say privately that he couldn't say publicly? I mean, I you know, it I, it is important for many of these conversations to actually t- happen privately. And what Bernie and I talked about was how how important it is for us to acknowledge, you know, the, the kind of historical traumas that exist and the weight that some words carry. But also, you know, thinking about uh, how important it is for us to... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk about oppression. You didn't apologize for citing APAP by name in your apology. In fact, you said very specifically that you reaffirm, quote, the problematic role of lobbyists in our politics, whether it be APAC, the NRA or the fossil fuel industry. I think a lot of people will be agreeing with that. You said we must be willing to address it. Chris Hayes of MSNBC tweeted recently, and I quote, I really don't think the democratic establishment and APAC and others have quite grasped just how much they are losing and have lost wide uh, wide groups of the Democratic Party base. Uh, he said APAC could end up going the way of the NRA in terms of being stigmatized in progressive circles. Yeah, and, not- you, and oh. you, will, you will hear people say, you know, the, the NRA doesn't own me. Yeah. You will hear people say, you know, I will not be bought by the NRA. In fact, Donna Shalala was one of those people, right? your fellow which Democrat, implies who said that. that there are other members exactly. who are bought by Indeed. the NRA. And so when you mention that about other lobbying groups, then you are reprimanded. Yes. Um, I guess the problem condemned. is, as, as you've now recognized, I think we both agree, when it comes to APAC and when it comes to Israel, we all have to just be more sensitive because there are these anti-Semitic tropes about cabals of Jews controlling the world. Yes. And that's and, what and, we have to avoid. Yeah, and I think... But be able to have an honest discussion about lobbying. Yes, and I think no, you know, no one really, in, in the context of the conversations that I've had, sees that that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, 
we talk about Saudi money in Washington, D.C. and Saudi lobbyists. Yes. You've been very critical of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you even called for a boycott of Saudi Arabia after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, but it's no funny one calls how me Islamophobic because I'm Muslim. Yeah. Indeed. Or, or nobody says that criticizing Saudi Arabia yeah. is Islamophobic. It's interesting because people say if you support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, BDS, as you do, that's anti-Semitic. And it's because you're picking on Israel, although you've actually picked on Saudi Arabia as well, which I but, find but ironic. I, but I think the, the, the theme here is because I'm Muslim. Yeah. You know, there, there have been many members within journalism, within politics, within all kind of aspects of our society who have spoken about the kind of influence that APAC has yeah. uh, on Congress and on our foreign policy. No one calls them anti-Semitic because they are Jewish. Mm. But when it comes to someone like me, even the the slight mention of them... I guess you fit their preconceived notion yes, of what an anti-Semite yes. anti looks like. And I think it says like. a lot about them than it does about me. I mean, this is a debate we need to have, and, I, and this is why I come back to your Democratic colleagues. They kind of need to take some of the lead here. It can't just be you, Rashida, with a little bit of AOC pushing this out there. It needs to be some of your kind of um, older, whiter, maler colleagues, could, should we what, say. What we go back to the to the original question you asked. I think there there is an interest in putting us in a box of constantly defending our identities. Yeah. And I am not interested in being in that box. I'm interested in defending my ideas and not my okay, identity. Um, just on the ideas, just to be clear on policy, by the way, we know you support right. BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions. Uh, but what is your actual position on a quote unquote solution to the conflict? Are you for a two state solution or are you, as a lot of people on the left, a lot of uh, progressive Jews, a lot of Palestinians now calling for a secular, democratic, one state solution in the Middle East? Where do you stand on that? I believe in a, a two-state solution. I think it is important for for there to be uh, the the existence of two states that allow both of the peoples that are involved to have their own sanctuaries, their own states. Now, if there are Palestinians and Israelis that are interested in having a, a one-state solution that that involves both of them, then that that is a decision that they get to make and, and something that they get to advocate for. But I'm not one that, that sees there to be a, a solution that will involve one. I think the only solution um, that works right now is to advocate for two. You're a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You, you used your position on that committee in the midst of the row over the tweets to really grill uh, Trump's envoy uh, on Venezuela, former Reagan official Elliot Abrams for his frankly indisputable record of genocide, denial and war crimes uh, apologia in the 1980s. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question. and I Yes or no? No. Um, millions of people watched that video on Twitter, on Facebook and went viral. Why is it taken that long for a person like that with a record like that, to be held to account in front of a congressional committee? And I'm someone who represents many identities that have constantly been debated in that committee. And for the first time, I actually get to sit on that committee. For many years, I've spent time screaming at the TV, asking <laughs> questions and wishing someone on that committee would hold people accountable yeah. Um, for the actions that they have been part of that has caused so much harm around the world. And when I had my opportunity, I wasn't going to let it go to waste. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is you had Democrats, member of members of former members of Democratic administrations, grandees of the foreign policy community here in Washington D.C. coming out in defence of Abraham, saying you were unfair to him, you were mean to him. He's actually a really nice guy. And part of me thinks this is the reason why so many people didn't want you on the on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Still don't want you on that committee. It's got nothing to do with you know, your tweets is to do with the fact that you're going to ask these uncomfortable questions of people in power that haven't really been asked before. Exactly, exactly. I mean, today we were talking about refugees and I sat in committee and, you know, one of the committee members was, was talking about vetting refugees and how that process should work. Um, but you know a little bit about that process, when, maybe. Uh, and when they got to me, I said, you know, it's it's fascinating that we we talk about this and here I am. I sit now on this committee and I can tell you a little bit about what that process looks like and the kind of contributions I've made once I came to the United States. And so it is it is a, a great opportunity for my unique voice to be yeah. on that committee. The- and my unique voice is one that does not align with many other voices. I was going to say that. Right? The like fact that, that, you're on, that the, have The fact influenced. that you're on that committee probably makes those people want to vet refugees more, to start, <laughs> to start more of you from turning up on their congressional right. committee. I mean, I think, you know, we, we have had policies that have created refugees around the world. But because we are so focused on those refugees, we've never asked about those policies. And for the first time, we're going to have a refugee on that committee Mm. who asks us about the policies that led to people becoming refugees. One of the big migration crises right now, which is affecting the United States, of course, and the region, is Venezuela, which has produced an outpouring of people. And Donald Trump claims to care about the people of Venezuela, even though he won't let them in uh, as refugees, interestingly enough. Um, You've been outspoken in recent days in opposing U.S. intervention of any kind in that country. You even got into a spat uh, with Brett Stevens, the neoconservative columnist at the New York Times, who accused you of being pro-President Maduro and pro-starvation. It's really the, the only kind of economy that they have, right? I mean, you, you're either uh, yeah. for regime change and bombing countries and, and destroying the fabric of, of that society, or you must be a lover of a dictator or, you know, that particular regime or whatever that's going on there. Um, and And it's not that. It's about making sure that we follow international law. It is about protecting the sovereignty. It's about allowing people to to have self-determination. It's about making sure that we are not constantly using our resources to destroy other people's resources. Um, It's about awakening the American people uh, to the realization that there are profits to be had and there is a purpose for, for our involvement in many of these uh, countries. And it's about really reckoning with, with this, this idea that we go to war in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and in, in Yemen and in Somalia, but then we put them on a ban and we don't allow those people who we have made refugees to come into this country. Oh, the hypocrisy is amazing. And so if we want to have policies that put us in good standing with people, then we should. We should act with diplomacy. We should act with fairness. We should protect life and we should protect people's resources. So what do you want to see happen in Venezuela? Do you have a solution, a preferred option of what should happen? Well, the constitution of Venezuela says that there needs to be an election called within 30 days. And we're waiting for that 
to happen. What we should be involved in is having diplomatic conversations and bringing people to the table and being a partner uh, in in facilitating that. But, but we are, are threatening. Yeah. We are threatening intervention. We're sending humanitarian aid that that is. Um, in the guise of, you know, eventually invading this country. And the you people don't support, of the country do not want us there. You don't support, like your fellow Democrats and like the US government does and the Canadian government does, you don't support the leader of the opposition as being the president right now, not Absolutely President Maduro. Not. Okay. Um, we've seen Bernie Sanders try and drag the Democratic Party to the left on foreign policy in recent months and years, just as he did on domestic policy in 2016. Is that what you're trying to do now? Because as I say, a lot of Democrats don't agree with you on Venezuela. They don't agree with you on Israel. People in your party like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Elliot Engel, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, they seem to be perfectly happy with the status quo on foreign policy, this huge defense budget, this endless wars, this constant itch to intervene, meddle in other countries. What do you do about that? How do you push back against that? Are you trying to push back against that? I certainly am. I mean, for, for many of them, it's just muscle memory, right? They just have to edit their last statement on whatever, <laughs> right? Insert a new country name. And for me, I've seen the destruction of war. I believe that there is a more positive way for us to have influence on the international stage. We have to make sure that we have a foreign policy that is in line with our values. Which US foreign policy hasn't been in line with so-called US values for decades. Uh, Trump just makes it more obvious. Just before we finish, now that you're on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, you're under this relentless 24-7 scrutiny, especially from the right and from some fellow Democrats. Are you going to tweet less or tweet more carefully? Uh, maybe fewer rap lyrics, some might say. Um, or in this age of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is there now an expectation that all of you guys have to be ready with an instant quip, put down, pithy one-liner on Twitter? I mean, there might there might be uh, more more appropriate rap lines. I should be tweeting. I don't think this is this is about whether you tweet more or tweet less. It's about figuring out where uh, a comfort spot might be. I, I I believe that there are a lot of people who analyze my words differently because of their preconceived notions about who the Muslim is, who a refugee is, who you know this black woman is, and and I think. You know, there there is an opportunity for for me to heal people from their Islamophobia, from their anti-blackness, from um, their racism, so, and and it is it is it is a process that we all have to be engaged in. And I'm okay with people being uncomfortable. I have been uh, living with that discomfort for many years, and so I'm going to push people as much as I can. So then, let me ask this as a final question: What would you say is the single biggest lesson that you think you've learned? in recent weeks from being in the eye of this political and media firestorm on so many different issues? I think when there is an opportunity um, to display um, humility uh, and step back and, and really look at your, your actions, there are many doors that, that open that you might not have even realized existed. I think, you know, I've had uh, much deeper conversations with a lot of my colleagues that would have probably taken me uh, years to have. And as I always say, you know, I mean, I've been through a lot of turbulent situations and every turbulent situation I have been in, there's always been an, a positive outcome for me and growth. 
Um, and so this is this is one that I don't look at with a negative lens. I, I think there is much more um, positive outcomes than, than negative. Ilhan Omar, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. That was Congresswoman Ilhan Omar in her first broadcast interview since that controversy over her tweets about Israel and APAC. I didn't think my first interview with her as a member of Congress uh, would be focused so much on all the hate she gets, on death threats. Uh, It's pretty depressing. I remember telling my Muslim daughter uh, to be full of pride that we now had someone in Congress who looks much more like her or her mother. And yet here she is on the receiving end of so much hate and abuse, I would argue, because of that headscarf, because of that Muslim identity, because of that skin colour. Look, is she perfect? No. Should she think twice before posting tweets on contentious, sensitive issues? Uh, yeah. But is the coverage of her ridiculously disproportionate? Yes. Is it uh, in bad faith a lot of the time? Yes. Is it hypocritical? Yes. But above all else, it's dangerous. It is dangerous to demonize a young Muslim woman of color in this way and just watch Fox News, listen to right-wing talk radio. They are turning her into a boogeyman in a country where there are nut jobs out there with guns who I don't even want to start thinking about what they do when they hear this stuff and watch this stuff. And I do hope that Democrats and liberal journalists who've been sitting on the fence for the past few weeks watching this unfold in front of their eyes get off the fence and start taking a stand in defense of the likes of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who face brazen bigotry and very dangerous threats day in, day out. And I hope they do it soon. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Mollard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever it is. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, do please email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.